chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of God has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff. The worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay in their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserted, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone does not welcome you or listen to your word, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On, on my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. That at that time, you'll be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above, his, above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the student to be like their teachers, and the servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his house? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing for nothing for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But 
whoever the Son is before us, I was the Son before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a, fa- a, a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be their members of his own household. Another who loves their fa- anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. Anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, surely I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. Evening, everyone. Great to be with you. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Mike. I'm one of the ministers at St. Matt's. Really good to be here. Probably Matthew 10 open. Um, There's 42 verses. We're not going to get across them all, but if you leave chapter 10 open, that will be really helpful. That should work for you. Uh, There's a phrase in the English language to nail your colours to the mast. It means to publicly announce what you believe or publicly show what team you belong to. It comes from the 17th century navy battles where ships would fight each other and they would identify which side they're on by flying a flag of a particular colour. So to really make it simple, if you're fighting for the red team, you'd fly a red flag. And since then, the phrase, nail your colours to the mast, has come to mean to show which side you're on need to identify with a public uh, set of beliefs or values. And in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking about what happens to his disciples when his disciples nail their colours to the mast. It's all about what happens when they publicly identify as followers of Jesus and they align with the mission of Jesus in the world. Um, Here's an illustration of what it feels like, I think, to align with Jesus publicly in his mission and nail your colours to the mast. Here's an illustration of what it feels like. Uh, A few years ago, my wife and I built a new house in a development, and as families slowly moved into that area, uh, one day we noticed a group of them all meeting each other on the street for the first time, so we went out and introduced ourselves. And as we talked about which local schools we were going to send our kids to, one of the guys said that he wanted to send his kids to the nearby Christian school, but then he complained bitterly that that meant he'd have to send his kids to a church and why the heck would he ever do something that cruel to his own children? And everybody nodded as they agreed that sending your kids to a church would just be cruel and stupid. And I felt rather uncomfortable uh, at that point and I I couldn't quite work out like what I should say. Like, should I step into that situation and say, well, you can send them to church with me. I am, after all, a church minister. But that whole group, they had just nailed their colours to the mast. They had just all publicly agreed that church is kind of evil and maybe stupid. Now, if I go and nail my colours 
to the mast and show that I'm a Christian. What happens next? This is the first time I've met them. They're on my street. I'm going to live with these guys for years. And I kind of momentarily lost my nerve. I didn't quite know how to phrase things. And that, that moment sort of passed. And if you can understand this clearly, you can kind of capture the mood of Matthew chapter 10. Because that's what it's about. Jesus is sending out his disciples to spread the news of Jesus, to nail their colours uh, to the mast, to be part of Jesus' team. Uh, but they're kind of afraid. See, up to this point in the Gospels, it's actually been Jesus who's been walking around preaching about the coming of the kingdom and performing miracles. And his disciples, they've kind of been watching from the sideline. But chapter 10 is the point in the Gospel where Jesus starts to send them out to do it. And chapter 10 is kind of, it captures Jesus' pep talk, if you want to think of it that way. He's preparing these guys to go out on mission. Pick it up from verse 9. Jesus says, Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belt, no bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. So Jesus says to them, don't bring any supplies. Right? Because Jesus is expecting that these guys will be warmly received and that people will accept them and look after them. See, it's kind of a positive start for Jesus' pep talk that these guys look after their people and are very, very Christian. Because all the rest of the Gospels are actually about how the disciples just get back to being just normal. chapter 10 is Jesus preparing his disciples for mission. In the first few verses, they're really encouraging. He says, don't bring anything. People will look after you. But the majority of the passage is Jesus actually preparing them to be rejected, hated, persecuted, harmed, and even killed. Why? Why does Jesus think that is going to be the dominant Because of Jesus. So 
iPhone, Bill just says, on my account, on my account you'll be brought before the government and sentenced. Verse 22, you'll be hated by everyone because of me. So people are going to hate and malign and reject and kill the apostles because they've aligned themselves with Jesus. If we nail our tolerance to the mark, if we publicly align with Jesus' mission in the world, we obviously expect to be rejected and persecuted. And we should understand that as a kind of overflow of people's response to Jesus. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, oh, Jesus, you're kind of overstating it a little bit. You're being, you know, I think a bit, you're exaggerating a bit. Let me point a few things out. In just in the last hundred years, uh, there have been 26 million documented cases of people being killed just because they've aligned with Jesus. That's, that's 26 million Christians who read the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 and they don't say, oh, you're being a little overdramatic, Jesus. You know, that's 26 million people who would read the words of Jesus in chapter 10 and they would say, yeah, that's exactly what happened. That has been my experience this morning. 26 million people. Uh, the reason that we may think that Jesus uh, is overreacting or exaggerating a bit here is because we live in Perth, like a place where it's highly unlikely that anybody here will ever be killed because they publicly confess Christ. But even in Perth, I think that we think that Jesus is right when he says that people will reject you and malign you and despise you if you nail your tolerance to the mark and align yourself with Jesus' mission in the world. And isn't that why I kind of momentarily lost my nerve at that first street gathering? I think we think that Jesus is right when he predicts uh, rejection for his followers and, and knowing that actually leads to fear of people's response. Did you notice three times in that passage Jesus talks about fear? Verse 26, he says, don't be afraid of them. Verse 28, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. Verse 31, so don't be afraid. It's pretty easy, I feel, to sort of nail our colours to the mast on Sunday and publicly align with Jesus' mission in here within these walls. But then on Monday, all of a sudden, it's a little bit more easy to become afraid of people's response very easy just to lower the Jesus flag down a few metres just so that it's not as visible. And that's where this passage, I think, actually starts to become really relevant for all of us here who might be Christians, because I suspect that all of us at least know something of the fear of publicly aligning ourselves with Jesus and his mission, nailing our colours to the mark. You got it? That's Matthew 10. Uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples for going out on mission. And the first few verses are really encouraging. As we see, there's been some level of acceptance. But the majority of it is Jesus preparing them to be rejected, hated, persecuted, and even killed. The natural response to that is fear, fear of people. But the good news is that you might have noticed Jesus gave several solutions as well to that fear that we might feel. 
the first solution, I think, is a little bit surprising. The first solution is to actually fear God instead of fearing people. Look at verse 28. Do not be afraid, says Jesus, of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus points out that when we fear people's rejection of us, it actually helps you to realise that those people, they actually have very limited power. The worst thing they could do is kill us. Now, now that is bad. And they actually have done that 26 million times in the last 100 years. But where are those 26 million people going to be? In glory. With God. See, their persecutors, they could kill their body, but they could not kill their soul. And Jesus is pointing out that that's actually nothing compared to what God can do. Because God can kill both the body and damn the soul to hell. Hell is that place where if you're a Christian like me, you could rightly go there for the life of our sins. If you're a Christian like me, the only reason you won't because Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. Now, if you can get that, then I think you can see why avoiding human persecution by distancing yourself publicly from Jesus is actually to distance ourselves from the one who saves us. Now, I don't think Jesus is talking about the occasional loss of nerve here, like I kind of had at that street gathering. I think Jesus is more talking about the repeated public distancing from Jesus. Or to think of it in terms of nailing your colours to the mast, I think Jesus is warning that repeatedly hiding your Jesus flag only to suddenly take it out on the day that your boat sails into Judgment Day means there's no safe harbour for that disciple. So Jesus' first point is to actually say, fear God. Don't fear people. Fear the crocodile not the mind. Uh, the second solution that Jesus gives here feels a lot softer and it's a bit more warm uh, than his first solution. Uh, the, first, the, the second solution Jesus gives to help us not fear the rejection of people is to point out that God is our Heavenly Father and he watches over and he cares about every single detail of our lives. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? helpful to know that sparrows were the cheapest meat that you could buy at the market. Uh, so uh, the modern day equivalent might be to say, you know, are not two bunning foxes sold for a dollar? The, the point is this sparrow, it's, it's not valuable. It's like the cheapest kind of commodity. Yet, verse 29, not one of them falls to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. See, if God knows and cares about the sparrows, the, the bunning sausage of the first century farmer's market, if God cares about them and nothing happened to them that God doesn't know about and care about and allow, then how much more is God watching over his own people as others reject him and malign them and persecute them? Jesus says, don't fear the rejection of people, 
when you have the love and the care of the Heavenly Father. We can be trusted. We got the snapshot of Matthew 10. He's setting them out on mission and he says to them, expect to be rejected, but don't be afraid. Rather, fear God and trust your Heavenly Father who loves you. So let's think a little bit about how to apply this. Uh, Firstly, I want to say that this doesn't mean that in every single conversation, you kind of need to nail your colours to the mast for everybody else. Like, it doesn't mean that every party you go to and every conversation that you have, you have to somehow shoehorn Jesus into that conversation. So you don't end up having conversations like this. Oh, hi, nice to meet you. My name is Mike. What do you do for a living? Jesus expects everybody to be an effective evangelist, able to articulate the gospel in every situation to get the gospel across and heard. I don't think it means so, but I think at the very least, it's got to mean that if you've been in a relationship with people in the office, in class, on your street for three months, six months, a year, and nobody knows that you're Christian, I think it means something's wrong. I think it means there's some other colour publicly nailed to our mast. But here comes the shock of Matthew 10 that that would rightly send tremors through us, I think. I think Jesus would take what I just said and take one enormous step further. I think Jesus would say that after six months, after a year, after two years, if nobody hates you, nobody rejects you on account of Jesus, then something is wrong. I think that's the shock of Matthew chapter 10 that he means. Isn't that the point of the passage? Like, isn't the point that if we're on mission, if we've nailed our colours to the mast, that we should expect rejection, hatred, and depending on where you live in the world, even murder? So here's the question that I've just not been able to get out of my head uh, this week. The question that I've not been able to shake this week is, can I name someone that dislikes me because of Jesus? Now, now hear that question rightly. That's not, can I name someone who dislikes me because I'm a jerk or because I'm greedy or something? The, the question that I have not been able to shake this week is, can I name someone that dislikes me because of Jesus? Can I think of an incident where people have rejected me because of Jesus? Because if I can't, then either Jesus is wrong in what he says in Matthew 10, or I'm doing a very good job of nailing my Jesus flag to the mast on Sunday, but I need to replace it with another on Monday. Jesus is saying that a key test that if you to find out if you are true disciples, aligning with Jesus' mission in the world, is that if somebody somewhere somehow rejects you specifically because of Jesus. I think that's the shock of Matthew chapter 10, which has left me feeling a little shaken this week as I've prepared for tonight. That somebody somewhere should actually think that you're stupid because you've told them that you believe that there is a creator God. 
someone in your family may call you narrow-minded because you think that there's only one God. Someone in your class may reject you because you've told them that you believe that no one is good enough to get into heaven outside the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. Someone in your social circle may ridicule you and cut you out socially because you don't get drunk with them every Saturday. I haven't made these things up. These are all things that people in my congregation have said to me over the last year and have come to me struggling with. All these things are actually to be expected. To come in agreement, we nail our colours to the mast. We publicly identify and align ourselves with being forgiven in the world. It's worth asking oneself. And I name these people or an incident in their heart has been rejected or disliked because of Jesus. Now, I don't think we're supposed to read what Jesus says here and sort of say to ourselves, well, okay, I'll just I'll aim for everybody to dislike me and that way I'll know that I'm on track uh, with Jesus. No, look, if you find that you're the kind of person that is constantly in friction uh, with people, that might say more about your personality than it does uh, Jesus because remember, remember the first few verses that Jesus talked about. He talked about how people wouldn't accept his disciples. So being publicly known to follow Jesus, it's going to create a spectrum of responses from acceptance all the way through to rejection and hatred. And the point of this passage, I think, is that you should really expect both if you're on mission with Jesus. Uh, since that street party uh, a couple of years ago, I've had all sorts of conversations about Jesus with my neighbours. Some of them have gone really well. Some have been really accepting a couple of months ago, uh, we got to pray with some of our pagan neighbours over things that they were really stressed about uh, in their life. It was really wonderful. There has been some uh, really great acceptance of that. Other times the conversations have not gone so well, and I have personally experienced that, that rejection that I sniffed at that opening street party. And that's okay, actually. Because Jesus says, that's actually what you should expect. If you're the kind of person like me, who actually really never wants to upset anybody on account of Jesus, if you, if you justify it by some way, I do, by saying, well, you know, that's what Christian life should be like. We should be loved and respected by people and live out godly lives. Like, if, if that's you, it's worth asking another question. I think it's worth asking, why do I think Look at verse 24 with me. Jesus says, The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the students to be like the teachers and the servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? See, the disciples, they are not above Jesus. Chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who has a demon and the religious leader's response is to call him evil, to call him Beelzebub, which is a reference to Satan. So if that's how they're responding to Jesus, how much more will they respond this way to Jesus' followers? Because the disciple is not above the teacher. So if in you there's that kind of part of you, just like me, 
Because the kind of person who constantly wants to avoid upsetting people on account of things, and we think, you know, that's how it should be, that's how my Christian life should play out. It's worth asking, why do I think the public rejection of Jesus is wrong, but not me? Why do I think that in that area I'm above Jesus? It's a hard passage, isn't it? Uh, I don't think it's hard to understand. I think what Jesus is saying is actually really clear. It's just hard to embrace. I, I find chapter 10 very difficult to embrace. It's hard to embrace nailing your Christian colours to the mast when you know that it will mean that somebody, someone is going to reject me. noting that Jesus is not saying that this is an easy path of discipleship. I think shockingly he's saying it's a necessary and expected path of discipleship. And if we think that nailing our colours to the mast is hard, try nailing your hands and your feet to a cross and being ridiculed and rejected by the very people that you came to save dying for their sins as they hurled insults at you. Because that's what Jesus went through. To give us the privilege of being able to fly a flag that identifies us as God's children. You can think of it this way. You and I are members of the sinner's fleet, flying rebel flags that identify us as God's enemies with no safe harbour to dock in on Judgment Day. That's a fleet that is doomed destruction and in a total act of grace Jesus takes down his flag that identifies him as righteous and gives it to us and we take down our flag that identifies us as rebels with no safe harbour on judgment day and we give it to Jesus and he nails it to his mast as he nails his body to the cross and he did that so that you and I might have the privilege of hoisting a flag that identifies us as God's children. It's a total act of grace that we even have that flag to fly. And suddenly the taunting and the opposition, it actually doesn't seem that bad. Suddenly the accusation that I might be narrow-minded because I think there's only one God, it seems to lose its sting in the light of God's grace. So nail your colours to the mast, Uni Church. Be free to publicly align yourself with Jesus and his mission in the world and do so without fear of people's rejection. Because they will reject you. But it's okay. It really is okay. They did the same to Jesus. And you have a heavenly Father who cares for you, who sees everything that happens to you, and to him you are worth more than many, many sparrows. So it's okay to nail your colours to the mark.